He was like, do you know about the statue? Have you heard about the statue they built? You know about the, the yeah. Orson Welles? He's like, well, you know, a few years ago, the, the friends of Orson or whatever they're called, you know, they got together in Woodstock and they said, let's, we need a statue. We need a proper statue of Orson Welles. And so they, they went about, you know, making plans and raising money and blah, blah, blah. And he's like, and I guess at a certain point, the money just wasn't really there, just kind of dried up. So they ended up building a statue and then they unveiled it and it was like, tiny it was like two-thirds the size he's like it was like a two-thirds scale orson wells or something it's like it looks like midget orson wells because that's all the money they could get he's like it just looks ridiculous it just looks ridiculous very small very small orson wells but i was like cracking up because i'm like you know i bet orson wells would love that i was like he would fucking love a tiny statue of himself because he was so big you know that it's like of course it's a small man right here you know i would really enjoy just to have one of those at home put it in the garden well yeah everyone should have an orison in their garden yeah (laughs) the policeman isn't there to create disorder the policeman is there to preserve disorder gentlemen get the thing straight once and for all we clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He won't have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. Oh, I'll tell you the truth, this guy's starting to get on my nerves. <laughs> you want to crown him? Then crown him. But they are who we thought they were. And we let him on the house. That's hot out there. Let's, we don't walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Gauntlet. I am one of your hosts. My name is Ryan Saunders, and I'm here today, as always, with Eric Marsh and Andrew Stasulis. So for those who may be listening for the first time, The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast in which one of us is tasked with selecting a theme for the week. And then the other two gents are challenged with programming a double feature that reacts to that theme. So this week, I was the one that was picking the theme, getting us getting us zoned in for the Halloween season. You know, I was thinking, you know what, why not get a little spirit Halloween going here uh, in the Gauntlet Studios? We, we typically try to avoid the major holidays when the times come up. But, you know, this time I thought, well, we'll lean in a little bit. But, you know, didn't necessarily need to be a, a horror show necessarily. I was just inspired by the season, by the, the autumnal chill that was coming through the air. So I thought, you know what? I want these boys to put a hex on me. I, I wanted to see some witchcraft on screen. And um, to be honest, it was as simple as that. I don't really have like a, you know, a preamble here about why I was sort of wanting to pick witches. I just was thinking it's a fun topic. It's very rich. There are so many great, great witchcraft films. And you know what? I, I didn't necessarily know what I was expecting. It, it definitely wasn't this. Uh, and I guess that that's the typical, you know, gauntlet uh, note that I like to we sort of share about each other every time we come with a really spirited double feature like this but um this one was unusual and I was particularly surprised with what Marsh brought to the table and it is the earlier of the two films so I'm gonna let Marsh tell a little bit about uh what what you brought um so take it away to be honest I struggled a little bit 
in deciding on on what film I wanted to choose because uh, as I learned witchcraft films are uh, kind of a gray area there's a lot of overlap there's a lot of questions uh, that I sort of ran into in deciding what to pick uh, and I'm sure we'll we'll talk about some of that stuff but but ultimately I was just you know texting with Andy as I often do and uh, I brought up kind of as a joke a film that I loved as a child. And of course, Andy responded to me, I also loved that movie when I was a kid. And it's true. It's like, it's a very strange movie in retrospect. And I think that's like part of the reason why I wanted to bring it to the table. It's a, it's a movie I haven't seen in over 25 years, at, le- at least, you know? Uh, so I chose, uh, against my will, a Disney film from 1971, <laughs> Bedknobs and Broomsticks. Bedknobs and Broomsticks is a you know, full-blown Disney affair. It's a musical, it's an adventure, it's an animated film, uh, and it's also a World War II propaganda film made in 1971, (laughs) question mark. Uh, And the film has a very kind of like hilarious origins, you know, especially thinking now of like Disney as the, the king of IP. But the, the sort of concept originated with these novels by English children's author Mary Norton. And Walt bought the rights to these in like 1945. And then they just like sat on the shelf until uh, they were trying to acquire, you know, the, the rights to Mary Poppins in the early 60s. And when they were having trouble doing so, they started to develop Bedknobs and Broomsticks. So in many ways, this film is like the replacement picture for Mary Poppins. And it is like shadowed by it at every turn. And it is in fact like the exact same creative team that made Mary Poppins. So mm-hmm. uh, at a certain point, they were gonna do it in the middle 60s, but they were like, ah, it's too, it's too soon. It's too much like Mary Poppins. You know, it's this whole like joke. And then ultimately, uh, it's released in 1971. And the film stars the always delightful Angela Lansbury as Eglantine Price, Miss Price, who is uh, a spinster and a witch in training who is taking a correspondence course in witchcraft in August 1940 in the small town of Pepperidge Eye near the Dorset coast. And this film's backdrop is essentially the Battle of Britain. So, you know, she takes in these sort of like kids or orphans who've been evacuated from London, uh, and they discover that she is a witch. And from there, uh, a lot of adventures, uh, you know, take place, uh, including a trip to a a faraway animated kingdom, uh, to London and back and on the World War II battlefield as well. So again, it's just like a movie that when I, when I've always thought about it, I'm like, did I hallucinate that? Like, (laughs) and why did I love it? You know, just like those basic questions of like, 
I remember being enamored by it, wanting to watch it again and again. Same. uh, Yeah, and it's got a good amount of witch stuff. It's mostly kind of like comical, but they also have, yeah, this sort of like time and space traveling magic uh, bed knob, you know? So they're like flying around in like psychedelic bed mode uh, throughout the movie. So yeah, that's... uh, that's the short of it. That's bed knobs and broomsticks from 1971. Thank you. Thank you. I too felt as though I hallucinated that film even just <laughs> after watching it. Um, and I guess in certain respects, there are many elements of the film you chose, Andy, that I felt like I hallucinated. Um, so tell us a little bit about uh, the oddity that, that you brought along. As Marsh uh, mentioned in his intro, we were both really banging our heads against the wall at certain points uh, and deciding what we were going to show, what we wanted to pick, because it's just like, on a certain level, I felt that there were too many options, but I also felt that there were too few interesting options for this topic. And uh, maybe that's because of how you pitched it to us and uh, what I was sort of thinking you were looking for (laughs) you know we did you know we we don't have to get into it intensely but we did at a certain point have a have a have a short brief fiery debate about you know the 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 gender of witches uh that you would accept for this week or that you were looking for even though you eventually acquiesced and said that you would accept warlocks (laughs) <laughs> after much resistance. Yeah, after, yeah. you know, a little We'd bit already of, given up the quest for warlocks. Yeah, a little point. bit of little bit of pushback. Uh, you just told me it was too broad. I had to at least narrow it a little bit, get the warlocks out of the picture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get it. Um, but yeah, you know, we we were we were really kind of going back and forth and and I think I got stuck on on two titles uh, from from my youth, films that I'd seen when I was young that uh, I, I just sort of couldn't couldn't veer too far from. Every time I would would think of another title, I would sort of like swirl back to this. And and yeah, once Marsh had pit, picked bed knobs and broomsticks, then my choice became very easy for me. Um, the film that I chose is a very weird one considering the director of the film. That is uh, The Witches of Eastwick from 1987, directed by George Mad Max Miller. Uh, This is a film based off of a novel with the same title by John Updike. The story involves three women in the sleepy New England town of Eastwick. Three single women who are struggling to find meaning and purpose and value in their lives. We have uh, three powerhouse actors uh, playing the, the titular witches of Eastwick. We've got Cher as Alex. We have Susan Sarandon as Jane and Michelle Pfeiffer as Suki. And each of them has their own set of, you know, personal dramas and things that they're struggling with. Cher's character Alex is a 
sort of like wannabe sculptus, sculpture artist, something like that. And she's she's trying to, to find meaning in her art, but feels very unappreciated. Susan Sarandon's character, Jane, is a very seemingly repressed cellist who uh, is a bit of a type A personality, very, very much feeling sort of trapped in in her pursuit of of perfection as this musician. And then we have Michelle Pfeiffer's character, Suki, who is a mother of what at times appears to be like 10 children. I think it's like six or something like that. She just is always like yeah. just, just covered in babies, covered in like little children. <laughs> uh, and as I mentioned, all of them are sort of single and they're in this town, this very sort of nosy town that seems to be populated only by male chauvinist pigs and uh, they don't know it at the particular moment at the opening of the story but each of them is a witch and they sort of come across their powers accidentally uh, following this, this sort of like opening very weird moralistic speech that one of the, I think the principal of the school is is giving. Uh, they find themselves all, you know, imagining a rainstorm independently of one another. You know, God, if only it would rain, we could get out of this guy's speech. And sure enough, a huge storm develops. They conjured it, but they don't know it at this particular moment. And then later that evening, they get together <clears throat> and they all start talking about men. Men, men, problems with men. And if only the perfect man could arrive. If only we could conjure the perfect man. And they start discussing what they think that perfect man would look like, would sound like, would act like, uh, how he would be equipped. <laughs> and again, as they don't realize it, you know, they are witches, and just like they conjured the storm in the opening of the film, they do conjure the perfect man who arrives in town in a black Mercedes. And that perfect man is, of course, none other than Jack Nicholson, Daryl Van Horn, as he likes to pronounce it. <laughs> and, uh... Daryl Van Horn may or may not be the devil, uh, but it is his arrival and their subsequent polyamorous tryst that helps the women realize their true potential as witches, and they unlock their powers. And then from there, really, the film is a comedic battle of the sexes between this so-called perfect man, played by Jack, and these three women, this coven in Eastwick. It's a very weird movie. It's a bonkers film on a certain level. Uh, it is a George Miller film. So I think, you know, you see a lot of his influences at times. Uh, you you can't help but, but notice uh, the, the cartoons, the cartoonish element that I think um, really kind of directs a lot of, a lot of the the madcap witchery that that's going to unfold through the film. Um, I think it's a I think it's a fun film. I think it's a a somewhat problematic film, especially you know if you're going to discuss whether or not this is a kind of proto-feminist you know witch tale or if it is kind of 
misogynistic on a certain level. Uh, people have pointed out that this is a film described as a as a sort of feminist comedy, and yet it completely fails the Bechdel test. So, yeah, no kidding. <laughs> so I don't know. I'm sure that's I'm sure that's something that we're going to discuss. But but I, I think it's a I think it's a really great looking film, and I think that the special effects, especially. Uh, near the the climax are are pretty wild and pretty impressive, um, and I think we're gonna have a lot of fun connecting it, comparing it to bed knobs and broomsticks. So that's the film that I brought, The Witches of Eastwick. Thank you, thank you both. Well, I think one thing I did want to start talking about initially before we get into maybe some of the more like broader connections thematically between these films is addressing something you just said, Andy, which was, um, it's a great looking film. They're both really interesting looking movies. And they both, in my opinion, kind of subvert certain expectations of what movies from their respective eras look like. So with Bedknobs and Broomsticks, it's from 1971. And it definitely has that Willy Wonka sheen, like at times, like a bit gray, it's look at England during the war. But then it also then diverts into psychedelia, like especially anytime that bed is traversing time and space, it really is like the Willy Wonka, like Tunnels of Terror sequence. It's like Skidoo, you know? Oh, sure, it is even like <laughs> Skidoo. Yeah, but it's still, like, it's a film that overall, because of its production design and its crew and the film stock they were using, it looks like a relic of the 60s, and it, it's, it's sort of odd seeing it in 71. And then Witches of Eastwick is interesting because it feels like it has all of the studio resources at its disposal to look like, you know, a Spielberg movie from the era, but George Miller's eye is so different than than Stevens. And the film ends up being so kinetic and so flamboyant in its visual style that it's it, I was really exhilarated just on that level, watching all of those resources being, you know, delivered directly for George Miller to give us a movie that looks as crazy as this. And I think that's, you know, I think this was my first time seeing Witches of Eastwick and and I watched it earlier today. So I'm like still processing it. And I feel like it, you know, it is a very interesting film because it feels like so many things are at war with each other within the kind of like sensibilities and the production, because it's like, yeah, like George Miller is wrestling with Updike obviously. And they're like clearly not getting along to a certain extent. And I think their sensibilities are like so different. But then you also have Vilmo Zygmunt like fucking painting with light and making Miller's wildest dreams come true through. Speaking of Spielberg. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like <laughs> Vilmos is on overdrive in this movie. Uh, and then you also have the dreaded John Williams score, you know, and I look, I know most people like him. I'm probably in the minority, but I can't stand John Williams. So yeah, me it, it is this like this huge Hollywood movie but Miller's sensibility is, if it's a Hollywood sensibility, it's like a 1920s Hollywood sensibility. Like, I thought, I was thinking of Steamboat Bill Jr. when I was watching this movie, you know? So, like, yeah, it's just a, it's a very strange, uh, strange movie. Yeah, I think it speaks to George Miller's strange career with Hollywood. That, you know, this is a dude who, you know, doesn't have a ton of 
feature films to his name, but he has some some very, very uh, financially successful films to his name. But at his core, you know, this is a dude from from like the new Australian cinema. This is a dude who at his core, like just wants to make like wild madcap uh, experiences, no, no pun intended, you know, for the, the director of, of Mad Max, but, but yeah, you know, I, I, I think it's, it's, it's a, it's a good example as to why he hasn't had a, I think more prevalent, I think career amongst some of those big spectacle filmmakers in Hollywood. Uh, I mean, he certainly has made some, some large films, but, you know, I think he's just, I think he's a guy that Hollywood has trouble with, uh, and it's hard to pin him down. It's hard to pin down what kind of a filmmaker he is, because his movies often are, uh, from one to the next, quite different, you know? This is the guy that did, you know, The Road Warrior, and the guy that did Babe, Pig in the City, <laughs> so, I mean... Right. Who the hell is George I mean, Miller? As we speak, three thousand years of longing, like, is an epic bomb. You know, <laughs> like, so yeah. I mean, he's a guy that obviously works with a lot of resources, with a lot of money, and a lot of his Hollywood work has been effects driven, right? Like, he's he's been an innovator with Babe, with Happy Feet. Like, he like pioneered like certain, you know special effects that had never been done before. Yeah. So like he's definitely yeah, he's like a kind of like a tinkerer guy, you know? Like mm -hmm. yeah. And I think his movies often have a lot of different ideas stuffed into them. And this movie certainly has that. I mean, it 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 takes a lot of turns from from yeah, you know, being a sort of like romance, a comedy, a satire, an action movie. I mean, it's a it's a drifts into horror territory. I mean, there's some like inc there's like one incredibly shockingly violent moment in the film that that I was like startled with. And I think because in my memory looking back on it, I was like, "Oh, it's a lighthearted film. It's a funny film." And and it is. But there is a lot of like darkness as well uh, embedded within within the film. Yeah, um, I mean, the film really does feel like it has ADD. You know, it is it's so chaotic and all over the place, and it is obsessed with so many different things as befits the visual style of the movie, while potentially losing track of of some of its other like thematic preoccupations. Because as you mentioned, right, like this film is sort of ironic for being purportedly maybe you know about like like a feminist witchcraft film but it, it sort of seems lost in its arguments about the gender war and i mean the film itself really is just like a showcase for jack nicholson i like can't quite tell if this was an actor as auteur thing where he like with his destabilizing performance really just sort of took over the production or if the camera itself just couldn't get enough of jack and i i haven't read the book i i haven't read any John Updike books, um, as I had mentioned to you both, like my understanding of John Updike just comes from the fact that so much of his leftovers from like dad libraries find themselves like on an entire shelf in a used bookstore. It's always like overflowing with Updike. And 
while watching the film, I couldn't help thinking, I'm like, oh, I bet this is like in the book, you know, this is like John Updike apologizing for being like, you know, a mid-century New York literary guy, you know. Um, <laughs> but I, I, you know, I read a little bit more about the book and the book does sound like it's at least a bit more focused than the film, you know, I, there was actually an interesting Margaret Atwood review of the book I read in the New York Times, and she really likes it. Um, and, you know, I, I, her description of it suggests that it is definitely much more about the woman. I mean, they know they're witches at the beginning of the book. Like, they have a little, you know, coven club. It's not something that they're slowly learning throughout the film through, like, the way they materialize things. Or even then that, like, Jack has to prove to them that they have like this power hidden within them. Right. Right. But yeah, it's, you know, suffice to say it is like a chaotic thing to try and wrestle with. <laughs> well, I mean, it's fitting then because bed knobs and broomsticks is an equally chaotic experience. And one <laughs> no kidding. Yeah. that has wild tonal shifts uh, from one sequence to the next. But I, I think it's interesting that both films present characters who at the beginning of the film, aren't like full-blown witches, right? They're both in this mm -hmm. process of discovery with regards to witchcraft. They're just kind of polar opposites because in Eastwick, it's intuitive. It's like spooky women, you know, and especially when they're together. I mean, when they toast, uh, it makes lightning strike like Jesus, you know? Yeah. And then on the other hand, like the Disney version, which is very funny, is like, she's she's got this correspondence course it's like she's getting spells in the mail and she's determined to you know use witchcraft to help the war effort right. uh and yeah it's like the, yeah to imagine witchcraft is is something that you can just like yeah write a couple letters uh and then become a witch is is very funny especially once uh it's revealed that like yeah it is it's like trump college or whatever <laughs> it's like this thing that that just like goes under before you're finished with the, you know, the course, right. like you're waiting to get the final and it like never comes, you know, uh, and neither does your refund. Uh, and I guess that's a, that's a huge departure from the source material, which actually has them going back in time. And the, uh, like Emilius Brown character is actually like a sorcerer from a thousand years ago, but they, they rewrote it to be like, he's a snake oil salesman living in like Blitz London. Yeah. Who's just like, a street magician and of course played by David Tomlinson who is prominently featured in Mary Poppins um, so I think it's a good choice too I mean like I think that change yeah. adds so much uh, so much more to it and to him that it is like it was all a hustle, basically. And he is this, like, threadbare street magician. Uh, I, I couldn't help when I was watching it thinking, like, God damn, Orson Welles should have played this character. I <laughs> yeah. really, oh, my yeah. God, yeah. I, I really was thinking... <laughs> Disney's insurance wouldn't cover him, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The lawyers said no. Yeah, <laughs> talk, talk about, like, actor as auteur, you know. That, yeah, that certainly yeah. would have derailed the production, I imagine. Wow. But God damn, I mean, that's basically what his character is. He's he's the, the charlatan street magician who you know, uh, wins you over as, as, as quickly as he is picking your pocket. And, and he's great. I mean, he is such a warm 
presence in in the film and and clearly the chemistry between him and and Lansbury is is at the heart of the film really and and I think carries it along but but you're right I mean it, both of these films kind of leave you scratching your head in terms of like you know how would I describe this to people you know what what would I call this film because Yes, there is a lot of like witchery going on in the film, but there's also just a lot of like, like, yes, as you described in your intro, Marsh, like D Disney just throwing shit at the wall and, and even including, I, I, I'm not sure if you mentioned that in your intro, um, but you know, like whole sequences that were originally even supposed to be in Mary Poppins, but they yes. were repurposed for this, such as the the underwater dance party that they go to yes. or something, right? Uh, yeah, and they do like, yeah, Lansbury and Tomlinson do like a, a Fred and Ginger underwater thing. And yeah, it's like a, a cut Sherman Brothers song from Mary Poppins that they just put in this movie. Glance, bubbles over with romance. It's lovely bobbing along, bobbing along through the water where we get along, swimmingly, far from the frenzy of the frantic world above, too beneath the blue, could even fall in love, bobbing along, singing a song, on the bottom of the beautiful briny sea. I mean, I think for me, revisiting it, the most kind of like what the fuck sequence is the celebration of the British Empire that oh, happens. Yeah, the dance when, of the empire. Yeah, in my notes. My God, dude, they go to this like market in London and it's like Lansbury and the, and the waifs, you know, these little kids the who street are urchins. the street <laughs> urchins who are like now her children or whatever. And, <laughs> and they come across all these people like dancing and singing and, and Tomlinson like mans the piano and, and everyone is going off in this market and it becomes this, yeah, like you said, Andy, it's like the dance of the British Empire and like different, you know, races and different peoples are dancing in turn. The Sikhs are fucking going off, you know? Oh, it's and so it's crazy. like, it's so cringe and it's so horrifying. Just what is this doing in 1971, right? Like, this isn't a wartime film. What is the purpose of this sequence? I mean, yeah. I know what the purpose of the sequence is. Like, Disney was like, I love the British Empire. Like, straight up. Like, Walt, <laughs> Walt wanted that as, you know, of course he died, you know, five years before this movie was even, like, re-put back into development, but he wanted to celebrate the British Empire. Like, especially during that time, right? Vietnam yeah. is raging. <laughs> yeah, this is what he's fucking thinking about, yeah. Yeah, to him, the British Empire is multiculturalism, you know? Yes. Like, to, that's it. the British Empire is what's woke to Walt Disney, you know? Yeah. I did think, like, the steel drum solo was kind of nice and didn't, like, make me as sad as the Sikhs who come out very straight-faced and scare the children, you know, with this, like, brown-faced man. they win them over. They do a little everyone bit, is yeah. equal under the <laughs> can you guys can you guys weigh in as well? But I was 
almost positive that some of those Sikhs were were white men in brown face. I think so. I'd guarantee yeah. it. Yeah, like I don't know if all of them were, but but like the the guys in the back, the back row. <laughs> they, oh yeah, they weren't <laughs> fooling me. That's for damn sure. No, no, I they didn't fool me either. Yeah, that scene was like that's when the film really took a turn for me. It's you the know, low at first, point for sure. Yeah. Look, it's also like fun, a little fun dancing spectacle. Like I'm not above that. I'm not above a big song and dance. But. Yeah, I mean, well, that's what I mean. Like there were moments Context that I was is like, everything. yeah, I mean, there were moments I was okay with how it was being depicted. Like I liked the steel drums bit. That seemed like a lot of fun. But you know, you had told me you picked the film because. Molly and I had COVID and you're like, oh, a little spoonful of sugar, you know? Yes. And I was like, man, you know, Disney's not normally my idea of like at the, in this point in my life is a spoonful of sugar. But at first it was, you know, I, I was really enjoying looking at the colors. The psychedelia of it was like very appealing to me. Um, I thought that the precocious children were extremely bizarre and I had a lot of fun with that. I feel like Charlie is the first child um, we've had on the pod that I actually think Durkey could like kick his ass. <laughs> like Charlie oh, is yeah. such a loser. Um, and I like that he like bears a lot of like grief from from his like fellow family members. Like they they like to rag Charlie because he thinks he's so tough. And yeah, I also like you know I I I was like the kids had me like just dying this time around laughing because yeah Charlie who tries to like immediately come off as this like cockney yeah, gangster like from London. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, dude. <laughs> He's trying to like, you know, like basically like extort her into like his rules, right? I'll tell everyone you're a witch or you give us sausages, you know? Like, <laughs> I mean, he's, he's immediately like coming in there and trying to like, you know, like assert his authority over it from the, from the mean streets of London, you know? And then you have Paul, the like toe-headed blonde kid who just delivers all of his lines in this like just deadpan that, that I found a lot of unintentional hilarity in. I think one of my favorite moments is like as they're like, you know, preparing to go on like one of their, their adventures, like Paul, the, the tiny little blonde kid, um, he, he's just at a certain point, it's like, well, I've got a lot in me pockets here. That, that'll help. I always keep stuff around. And he's like, what well, I've got? I've got a bit of glass. He's got this, like, broken glass. He's like, got some string. <laughs> got a little fish hook. Like, he's got, he's got all these, like, improvised weapons, you know, that I was just thinking, like, he's got, like, prison shanks in his pocket that are like, <laughs> yeah. oh, this could be useful to us. And I was thinking, like, boy, he had to, like, defend his gruel in, the, like, the children's orphan or something outside of London. But yeah, I got a lot of unintentional pleasure out of out of their interactions. And I, I think in general, on that note, you know, in my mind, like looking at this film being released in 1971, right? And we've already kind of discussed this sort of, you know, it's 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 1971. Why are we making this? Why are we doing this? What's this all about? And I was just imagining like, you know, Disney's marketing team kind of being like, oh, this is just what we need. Some 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 childlike whimsy in in this in this age of, of Vietnam and all this stuff. And and imagining a bunch of like children coming to this movie and, and recapturing the spirit of Mary Poppins. But like the real people, the real audience are just like a bunch of like fucking like 70s weirdos on LSD going to see this movie because like it is 
trippy as fuck. Like, and we've, we've like alluded to it and we mentioned it, like these crazy, like suddenly like psychedelic breaks that are incredibly colorful, but also the, the, the flipping into these just like strange animated sequences that, that don't, you know, do anything for the plot, but are like very bright, very vibrant, very colorful, very stupid, very goofy. So I was just like imagining that these theaters were packed, not full of children, but like full of just like bleary eyed day trippers who were just like, dude, you gotta see bed knobs and broomsticks, man. Yeah, dude, if, you were, if you were cool in 1971, you went to the, you know, evening showing of bed knobs and broomsticks and then went over to the Elgin to see El Topo afterwards. <laughs> like, yeah. that's the real 1971 midnight double feature. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'd love to see the demographic breakdown on who was actually going to see this movie in 1971. Yeah. Yeah, me too. I mean, there are moments where, especially like the the sequences when they're traversing space and time, like it felt like this is what Dave Bowman was experiencing when he was being, you know, shot out through the infinite in two thousand one. Yeah. You know, I wrote and then beyond well the infinite in my notes. You did? <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> it's really what it looks like, you know, the like the way the image gets inverted and it, like you get like the negative colors like coming through. It's it's yeah, it's totally zany. I think too, it's like. Like one of the the strange things, like looking at it this time, is that the 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 big animated set piece, the soccer game amongst animals <laughs> on the <laughs> island of Namumbu, uh, felt to me like way more like. Looney Tunes, way more like Warner Brothers style than a Disney style of animation because it's basically uh, like a like a slapstick set piece, maybe one that George Miller might make in you know one of his movies, but oh, he would yeah. do like a hybrid style where they would be like re- kind of real. Anyway, no yeah. doubt George Miller, <laughs> as a young man. You know, took acid and saw bed knobs and broomsticks. You know? No <laughs> yeah. doubt. He should reboot it. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking back to Marsh, how you were talking about like the idea of magic in both of these films and, and the way it's depicted. I do think there's somewhat of a connection between the spirit of magic in these films as something you feel and you have to sort of play like music. It's not just hitting the notes because Angela Lansbury does have her manual where she's reciting these spells. And even Mr. Brown, who is himself sort of like a fraudster, right? His Trump college of, of magic that he just like stealing spells and, you know, adding a few words to spice him up for his modern audiences. Uh, Even later in the film, he does need to turn himself into a rabbit. And in order to do it, it's not just saying the words, it's saying them with like a great deal of feeling and really meaning it and wanting it to happen. And I mean, that same thing is explored at multiple points throughout Witches of Eastwick. It seems to be the source of all the magic, the passion, but it is literally explored in a, in a nice scene when Susan Sarandon is trying to perfect um, a passage uh, of music on her cello that she keeps mucking up to the point where she, like the, the, uh, the string on the cello snaps and it causes her finger to bleed. And, you know, lo and behold, Daryl Van Horn, Jack Nicholson arrives and and he teaches her that it's it's not just about hitting the notes and getting, you know, the, the finger work 
down, you have to like really feel this music. You have to like feel it throughout your whole body. Mm -hmm. I think too, it's, it's a good point to like introduce a little bit more of like this, this perfect man and, and the role that he's going to play in, uh, the witches of Eastwick. So yeah, as, as Jack Nicholson's character arrives in this small town, he, he sort of throws himself into the lives of, of each of these, these women and presents himself as a thing that they need, a thing that they need to, yes, perhaps like unlock that feeling, unlock that passion. And to each of the women, he sort of, offers a, a different side of himself. You know, when he first meets Cher's character, Alex, she's the first one that he encounters. You know, she is a little bit more of the edgy one. She's kind of the, the, the bad girl of the three. And so he presents himself as a bad boy, a very bad boy in their encounter. And he's just spitting out, you know, one offensive thing after another, one very, you know, chauvinistic take after another. Anyway, I always like a little pussy after lunch. What do you say? Hmm? Are you trying to seduce me? I wouldn't dream of seducing you, Alexandra. I wouldn't insult your intelligence with anything as trivial as seduction. But, uh... Love to fuck you. And he kind of, you know, manipulates her a little bit by sort of like finding the thing that she's most insecure about. And that's what he does to each of the women. With with Alex, it's it's that yes, you know, you you aren't this this cool artist. Your your life is passing you by. You're not really doing anything. You're not living as as wild and carefree as you'd like. And of course, she eventually sleeps with him. And then, yes, to to uh, Susan Sarandon's character, you know, he gets her to stop worrying about perfection, to, yes, just simply, like, open up herself to passion, to heat. And again, the cartoonish elements of the film come in with that sequence when she suddenly starts playing that cello with fire and fury to the point where her cello literally bursts into flames while and she seemingly sex. orgasms as well <laughs> yeah, while yeah. she's like playing the cello <laughs> oh yeah and oh, he yeah. also teaches her to stop wearing her hair in a ponytail because the second half of this movie to me is a, a showcase for Susan's hair. Well, for, I think... All of their all, hair. The, the hair gets much bigger as, yes. the, as they become more witch-like. Each of these women just gets a bigger and bigger mane of wild, unkempt hair. Polly Platt, by the way, on the production design and the visual design. So I imagine she planned those transformations mm. uh, very well. Yes, yes. Susan's is the standout, though. Really remarkable hairstyle for I her. I feel like... George Miller's like obsessed with it. Like he's framing yeah. it like incessantly. Yeah. <laughs> and and I would too. I mean it's hard not to be obsessed with Susan Sarandon, you know. Yeah. I'm very pro Susan. Yes. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean like yeah, you know, this I think this film is you know, in that strange place because you do have these three very strong actors in these women. And and of course, Jack Nicholson, you have these very like strong dynamic presences, each of them in their, their own way. And it is kind of at, 
at times like a celebration of their power as women, as stars, each of them. Uh, I did find, I don't know if you guys read about a little bit of the, the, the behind the scenes drama of the casting, uh, particularly involving, I believe, Susan Sarandon and Cher. But originally... Susan Sarandon was cast in Cher's part and Cher was like passing on the film, but then Cher was like, okay, I'll do it, but I want that part. And they were like, well, we, we got to have Cher, so we'll give her the part. But they didn't tell Susan Sarandon until the first day of shooting that she oh was going to be a completely different character. I couldn't read up much more on like if that created a lot of like shit behind the scenes but you have very strong personalities in this film and i think like that energy like comes off on this screen like you're talking about jack nicholson's disruptive presence but like Cher is one of the all-time divas well documented you know (laughs) so i got to imagine there was a lot of passion and opinions on this set you know yeah I had really mixed feelings about Jack Nicholson's performance because when you look back at everything that was written about this movie, you know, he's the central focal point. Everyone's like, God, this this Nicholson performance is unbelievable. He's just off the chains. Like it just he chews up the screen and every moment of it is just so delightful. He I think it was Gene Siskel who has a line that says, Jack Nicholson is a special effect in and of himself. Oh no. And, yeah. yeah. And I don't know, maybe like I'd be curious to hear what you both think. Like I, with the distance of time, to me, it felt like the parody of a Jack Nicholson performance. Like it, it felt as though he was so self-aware that he turned it into something like so comedic that it just like lost all edge or meaning to me um what did you did you go how'd you guys feel about jack <laughs> i think you know man how do i put this i think it's it's your pleasure from watching his performance is entirely connected to your um appreciation of Jack Nicholson in general, right? Because as you're, Uh as you're describing it, I mean, it really is like Jack Nicholson doing Jack Nicholson, right? If somebody was like, what is Jack Nicholson like in a movie? It's like Jack Nicholson is like doing Jack Nicholson in this film. Yes. And if you appreciate that, if you enjoy that, if you don't mind that, if you don't find that disruptive, then, then yeah, this is a showcase for Jack Nicholson at his most unhinged in a comedy, in a film. I mean, he is coked out of his mind. (laughs) I mean, he is, this is, this is cocaine Jack 100%, no doubt about that. So I look at it as just like that as Jack Nicholson. I mean, he's, he is top build over the women. Uh, and again, I think that's a sort of a mark against this film as being this like celebration of strong women. I mean, the first name we fucking see is Jack Nicholson, very prominently featured. Noted lover of late. Yeah, noted. <laughs> noted yeah. lover, yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I I think I generally like the performance, Ryan, but it is over the top. It is grating, but I also kind of like, yeah, I mean, I think he's the devil in this movie, you know? So yeah. I guess it's sort of... Uh-huh. It fits with me, you know, or it works for me in how it sort of fits in this kind of like Faust thing that's going on, you know. But yeah, it made me think of like 
the departed you know which like i don't love his performance in that because it's like what you were talking about it's like so beyond but i think here because of the the supernatural or kind of like witchy nature of the movie uh it works, I think, for the most part for me. I mean, I was laughing. He gets to say, like, schlong a lot. And yeah. I also like <laughs> that he has a sort of, like, kind of, like, comedic duo thing going on with his uh, sort of, like, assistant, uh, Fidel, who is played by uh, Carol Stroykin, who's the giant from Twin Peaks, the legend yeah. himself. And they have this, like, very funny to me kind of, like, arrangement at this <laughs> mansion going on. And, like, all that stuff was cracking me up. Yeah. He makes Jack Nicholson look like he's four feet tall. Yes. You know, I've never seen Jack look smaller in a movie. I think the key to it working ultimately for me is that I feel that Jack understands self deprecation required to make it work. Uh, I think. You know, he he isn't necessarily just trying to be cool, Jack. He's trying to be ridiculous, Jack. He's trying to be buffoonish, Jack. And and I think he understands what his role is. And yeah, you know, it's kind of like Robin Williams. It's like if you if you if you understand the kind of energy that he's going to unleash in a film and and it 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 isn't a deterrent for you, then yes, you're gonna get exactly what you you should expect out of that. They're in in this film also sort of trying to to play up the idea of a just sort of like gross yuppie with money who who thinks that, you know, a bit of orientalism is is hip in the 80s, you know, that kind of that kind of thing. But but yeah, I, I think that Jack does what he is there to do ultimately. Yeah, I think I could always tell when he was reciting a line that was from the script that was like very funny and he sells it in a very convincing way as the devil. And I could tell the other moments when Jack was just like coked up and riffing on set and it felt like I'm like, okay, Jack Nicholson's just like shooting the shit, you know, like he's having a laugh. Though it's funny that you mentioned, you know, Jack is is top billed in this movie in, in Bedknobs and Broomsticks. Uh, Mr. Roddy McDowell, who I believe is second or third billed, um, only has about, you know, like three minutes of screen time. <laughs> talk about a talk about a sin behind the scenes. You know, Roddy McDowell, you know, I'm glad we finally got him on the pod, but we're going to have to do like more of a spotlight on him later. He uh, he's one of my favorite actors, and I don't know why I have always been. I've been obsessed with Roddy McDowell on the level of like Harry Dean Stanton, and I wouldn't compare McDowell's like acting capabilities to Harry. But if Roddy McDowell's name is in the credits, like, I will watch it. I don't care. Mm -hmm. Like, I am obsessed with that guy. I'm with you. Especially his work in, like, the 70s and 80s, like, when he did horror movies. Oh, yeah. Um, but, yeah, he was... He was a casualty of the uh, of this production. He he. I know he had like a bigger subplot that was lost along the way. Yeah, I mean, we should point out because I didn't clarify this, but there are, of course, in the Disney tradition of capitalism, two versions of this movie: the original theatrical cut, which is what we watched because that's also what Andy and I watched on VHS growing up, and then in 1996, the film was quote 
quote, they call it restored, but it's it's not restored. They just created a new version of the movie using stuff that was cut out of the movie. That stuff was cut out of the movie. It wasn't intended to be in the movie because it wasn't any anyway. It was like unfinished stuff yeah. too. They had to like bring in Angela Lansbury in like her 70s to, to, yes. to ADR entire sequences. And Roddy McDowell. And Roddy right. McDowell. And there yeah. is uh, apparently in the that cut, there's like 20 more minutes of Roddy McDowell. So maybe Ryan, check yeah. that out. Uh, just again, cut cut everything out and just watch the Roddy scenes. And- right. And that sounds really nice. Cause the idea of him as this like country preacher is super funny to me. Uh, they call him uh, vicars. Right? <laughs> it's true. Yes. Yes. <laughs> the, the country vicar, you know, he, uh, cause there does seem to, it seems like they were utilizing him well, that he would have been a source of comedy and that they like use his face in, in a meaningful way because the, he has like a pratfall or something like yeah. that. And yeah. in, in like one of his scenes, and just seeing them do that, I feel that Roddy probably brought a lot of spirit to his small role um, and would have been deserving of the second or third billing yeah. had he had he been included. You're right. I mean, and again, it, it just contributes to the overall like disjointed experience of this film because you see his name very prominently. He's introduced in the first five minutes of the film, and then we won't see him again until basically the the finale and even then it's only a moment it's it's really only that pratfall that we get with no context for why he's even returning to this place he just sort of shows Mm -hmm. up and and you can like immediately tell like there's more to this than just him showing up and falling down for our amusement you wouldn't certainly get roddy just for that but I'm with you, Ryan, on that uh, appreciation of of Roddy McDowell. I've long uh, tried to figure out a way to bring one of my favorite Roddy McDowell movies to this pod, which is The Legend of Hell House. I absolutely mm. adore that movie because of him and because of his performance. I think it's a good movie too, but but he as this sort of like jaded would be psychic in that film is 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 fucking awesome. He's so great. I have to also just recommend a Roddy McDowell since we're not doing a Roddy McDowell topic yet, but the film Shockma, where he plays a scientist that is experimenting on apes in this like university and the apes like go loose and start murdering all the kids. And they go ape. They go ape and Roddy is present the whole time <laughs> uh, and it is like a totally deranged performance. Also, great Columbo villain. Oh yeah. Yes, yes. The man's done it all. Yeah, so bless him, bless him, and we're sorry that he was relegated to the periphery of this film. Mm -hmm. And speaking of, uh, you know, peripheral characters and actors, uh, there's a, there's a, there's one in, in, there's two really that I think deserve honorable mention in The Witches of Eastwick. uh, More than honorable. Right, yeah. I mean, there's, <laughs> there is certainly the the main, you know, uh, group that we've we've covered quite well. But in this town, there's there's a lot of other tension that starts to emerge, primarily from the newspaper that uh, Michelle Pfeiffer's character Suki works at, and her boss Clyde is played by another of my favorite actors, Richard Jenkins. We were going off 
pod a little bit about Richard Jenkins because I'm watching Dahmer and and I I'm I'm thinking he's he's so great in that, but he also has a a wife. He's another kind of henpecked man in this town, and his wife is played by Veronica Cartwright, whose name in this film is Felicia, and Felicia starts to, I think, become imbibed with this sense that evil is about in Eastwick, that there's something going on here. And she has a couple amazing moments in this film. Uh, when, when you know, the, the town is first abuzz over the arrival of Daryl Van Horn, no one can seem to remember his name, and everyone's sort of taken by him, charmed by him in one way or another, bewitched, if you will, by his presence, but she is not having it. She knows that there's something wrong, and at the moment that someone can remember his name, and his name is first uttered, Daryl Van Horn, Suki's pearl necklace falls apart and Veronica Cartwright slips on these pearl necklace and takes a tumble down the stairs. And there is an amazing shot. Oh my God. <laughs> of her like in a heap at the base of the stairs with the most twisted broken leg. I think I've ever yeah. seen real in death becomes her moment. Oh yeah. God. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Daryl. Van Horn. Yes. Daryl Van Horn. And then, of course, you know, uh, when she starts to sort of speak in tongues about all the the evil that that she senses, uh, Jack, Daryl Van Horn, encourages the coven to do something about her, to do something about her, her, uh, her moralistic behavior. And they uh, they have this amazing scene with cherries where they're all eating cherries and she starts in the home of her and Clyde, her husband, Richard Jenkins, projectile vomiting cherries. Have another cherry. Please, what have you been eating? And I knew at that moment that it had to tickle Ryan's heart. I know this man loves a good vomit sequence, and there's a couple Several, vomit yeah. sequences in the film. How did the vomit in this film? Uh, how did it hit you? Did you did you appreciate it? You know, Marsh had said he wanted to give me a spoonful of sugar with bed knobs and broomstick to make me feel a little bit better on my COVID recovery. But you know, truly, nothing will make a guy like me recover than seeing a great barfing sequence in a film. And I, I really appreciated the gift you gave me because, yeah, that projectile vomit—the fact that it had like a really 
nice nasty color to it but then was like full of all these little balls of like cherries and seeds um i thought was like really expired the vomit itself kind of looked like bubble tea you know like with the little tapioca balls in it when it was dripping off the lamp like jesus christ yeah it was nice that george like took the time to pay attention to the way the vomit interacted with like the different like nice objects in this new england home because this is obviously like yeah it's like set in new england or maybe Rhode Island, Rhode Island and yeah. everything is like so nice they all have like such lovely homes everyone is rich and well to do it seems like a very pleasant way to live um, but to see it like soaked in barf uh, yeah really warmed my heart that was a, a really fantastic sequence and getting to see it again too like a second barf scene it just felt like a showering of gifts yeah well <laughs> in a church no less yeah, yeah. You know? and yeah. that's that was a real pleasure for me just seeing a bunch of people in pews covered in uh, Jack Nicholson's vomit. <laughs> I mean, that's the kind of like attention to detail I think that, you know, anyone can, can expect from George Miller. And, sure. you know, however sort of like confused uh, the sort of like thematic stuff going on is like there's one thing that isn't confused and that's like a good gag. Mm-hmm. And that shit is clear as day and like executed uh, to a T. I mean, yeah, that broken leg, Andy, that you mentioned was like, I wasn't ready for that level of just like, ooh, you know, like it really, <laughs> yeah. really got me. So <laughs> I think that's it. You know, if I would say like both of these films like share something in common, um, I mean, and they, they share quite a few things in common, but at least in terms of maybe some of the more like negative aspects, I think that both of these films you know, interestingly enough, are are 118 minutes. They're both. <laughs> I saw at least it, the yeah. ones that we watch are both 118 <laughs> minutes, and I think they both should have been about 98 minutes. I think that they should have been both a little bit more brisk. I mean, certainly in the case of Bed Knobs and Broomsticks, you know, there's just there's just too many different sequences that they were trying to hammer in this film. So much so that I guess the original conception was a movie that was like two and a half hours fucking long. And I mean, you feel it. You feel that. And I think it's the same thing yeah. with The Witches of Eastwick. There are a lot of moments of 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 lingering between the gags that kind of take away from the anarchy that that the film is is building to. And I think like when shit really starts to when when the vomit really starts to fly, the movie like takes off and and yes, all of the the Miller uh gags and and homages to, you know, his 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 inspiration as a as a young cinephile. I think you mentioned the the Steamboat Bill Jr. sequence when there's a a crazy windstorm that Jack Nicholson is struggling against. Like that stuff looks great, it feels great, it's vibrant. But I, I think if it moves faster, you don't have time to start thinking about like, is this film really about women or what what's going on? Right. Like, it, it seems kind of shitty to, to women on a certain level. Like what is this about him like you know, just giving them all good dick. Like, what's going on here? I think if it moves faster, I think, you know, you really will just appreciate the the star, which is, you know, vomit, broken legs, spitting out feathers, a crazy car chase sequence, or I guess not really a chase, but just a, a, a wild, like, car sequence where Jack Nicholson is, like, fighting a car. Uh, that stuff 
rocks. The special effects are are amazing. And I think even, you know, we'll get there, but like the the very brief final glimpses we get of Jack <laughs> were 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 awesome. But yeah, they're they're both a little long. Yeah, and I think, you know, one other like high point for Witches of Eastwick is definitely the quirkiness of the town because I think that George Miller's like sense of humor really shines through there. I was really struck by this like older woman who works at like a little shop that share uh she makes like these like little um little statuettes of like the the what is it venus the you know what i'm talking about the, yeah. the like original art mm-hmm. she makes these like little these little clay statues and when jack nicholson comes to town he, he buys them all up and the old woman running the store uh, introduces a gag that gets repeated for a while no one can remember his name it's all on the tip of their tongues but this woman introduces the idea of like jack nicholson having this sexual aura this like masculine <laughs> power to get everybody's juices flowing and she has this amazing line where she says this man out of absolutely nowhere this man appeared so charming not really handsome but riveting yes that's the word i was riveted i was looking into his eyes and i found myself thinking thoughts i hadn't entertained since world war ii i think i think i actually blushed (laughs) can you imagine (laughs) and i was i was like later reflecting on the uh like portobello road dance sequence uh as like walt disney himself seeing like ah like uh, the mixture of all the colonies it's making me feel things that i haven't felt since yeah. world war ii yeah. you know, i like haven't th- felt this way since the blitz i mean i guess that's <laughs> yeah that's also uh i guess maybe yeah you know why uh bed knobs and broomsticks was made in 1971 it's like americans haven't felt good since uh VJ Day. Come on. It's just been a series of disappointments. (laughs) Yeah. I also love too, Ryan, since you're bringing that up, that, that, you know, yes, Cher makes these little, you know, little statuettes and it's basically like a nude woman's torso. Mm -hmm. And when Jack Nicholson meets Cher, the, the sculpt, the, the sculpture artist, he says, the one that makes the little booby dolls. Well, you know, they're just little, little, yes, but uh, potent full of juice. <laughs> I love that line. <laughs> and like, since we're on the, the topic too of the town, I, I think this is where for me, the movie ultimately doesn't achieve that, that idea of being a sort of like celebration of like strong women and, and living your truth the way you want it to, you know, the moralistic elements of the town be damned because as it's presented, the movie essentially you know, they, they get into this kind of like foursome uh, and there's a there's an amazing sequence of a tennis match that that, you know, like is the is the, the symbol for this where they're they're playing tennis and it's awkward at first and, and they're all very adversarial. But then they learn to sort of play together, all four of them. Uh, and, and it's implied, I think, that they're all just having, you know, menage a cuts or whatever like foursomes you know and they're they're sharing each other and each other's bodies and and the kids are around and there's this awesome sequence where they're all partying at the at the mansion with with like thousands of pink balloons and everyone's just having a blast but then like once the women have all kind of unlocked this once susan sarandon is going around like a a a a you know red-headed sex fireball she starts to to pick up on comments that the townspeople are making about their 
their arrangement, you know, scandal at Lennox House, that sort of thing. And it really upsets the women. It starts to get to them and they decide like, we can't live this way. We can't have this. And I think in the film, it's kind of implied then that they're like, no, like, this isn't the way to live your life. Like, we should find a solution that isn't so risque in today's day and age. And that, of course, is what propels the film into then the battle of sexes of Jack Nicholson wanting to possess them and, and being very controlling and like, no, you've got to have me. But I was kind of like, man, if this were to me like a great witch film about society... These witches would use their powers then to say, fuck this town. Like, we are going to have this crazy relationship and our kids are going to be raised in this way. And and we're going to, like, just have this, this wild, polyamorous uh, relationship where suddenly our lives are better. But it kind of pulls away from that. And Jack Nicholson and what he's brought uh, is ultimately, like, too much. It's too much of a good thing for everyone. You've got to you know, play within the rules of society. I kind of feel the film ultimately like veers in that direction. I don't know what you guys felt, but. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Cause at a certain point I just wrote down like conservative fantasy question mark, question mark, yeah. because <laughs> look, I told you guys, I've been watching a lot of Westerns. I've been thinking about the town <laughs> and the moralizing crusaders, right? And all, and all that stuff. And like, yeah, those are those are present here, but yeah, ultimately Daryl is a, a horror movie villain. He he comes to town, he brings chaos, he destabilizes, you know, all of Rhode Island, all of Rhode Island or whatever, uh, and he has to be vanquished, right? Um, and it, it's it is funny to me because in uh, in my history class this week, I made my students watch Design for Living, the mm -hmm. Ernst Lubitsch film. Yeah. And that's a film that's also about a, a polyamorous relationship. And in that, Miriam Hopkins makes uh, Frederick March a successful playwright and makes Gary Cooper a successful painter. Mm -hmm. It's like basically the same plot of this movie, but yeah. like gender swapped. But Lubitsch's conclusion, of course, is that they just keep living as a threesome and mm -hmm. it's chill, you know, yeah. but here yeah. <laughs> the movie totally like goes back on that. And like, again, it's just trying too many different things. Cause I think there's like something to, you know, like the idea of like, Oh, witchcraft, it's a double edged sword. And like, as the film progresses, Nicholson gets even more boorish and even more misogynistic. And he really does become like, yes, this devil, this demon, you know? And then it's like, yeah, get rid of him and we all live happy, you know, we all live happily ever after. It is uh, totally incoherent in in what it's doing. Yeah, because there's also the weird suggestion, too, that it's just all their fault in general because they, like, manifested him. Like, the beginning of the movie is them, like, manifesting Jack Nicholson's average dick. Like, that's, like, the joke <laughs> at yeah. the beginning of the film. And then... He causes all these problems, and then it seems like the thesis of the film is like, well, you ladies like had an idea of what you wanted from a man, and uh, maybe you know, maybe you should be a little more reasonable with your expectations. You should want a man that's just nice to talk to. How about that? <laughs> like, is that enough for for you ladies? And so I thought that that was like an odd twist to it so it's like already the film is trying to argue that like jack nicholson arrives and helps women unlock their true potential 
And then at the same time, it's all their fault for all the problems that he, that he brings with him, you know, all his baggage. Mm-hmm. Very strange. Yeah, because, like, yeah, really, it's like, yeah, go back to a, a little more repression. Go back to right. having a nice thurs with your gals <laughs> and, and less, you know, uh, causing fucking, like, hurricanes. Or right, because, I mean, there's this, like, there's this great moment for Susan Sarandon's character where then she's taking the lessons and, and she's applying them to the little, you know, little middle school band or whatever, and the band starts rocking. Let's just get rid of the music. Mr. Moravec, and he was a drunk. Uh, but, but she's like at the 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 market, and all the women start whispering around her. You know, slut. And one of them's like, "Oh, she's not wearing a bra." And suddenly, she feels very self conscious about all that. And I was like, "If this was a, if this really was like, she's a she's a badass. She would just be like, fuck you. I'm gonna wear what I want and be who I want.'" But even for us as the audience, we're supposed to be like, oh, maybe, maybe, maybe she should put on a bra. Maybe, maybe that was a little too much wearing that to the market. Yeah, she should have just hexed them and made them all barf. Exactly. Market, you know, it should yeah. have been a big like barfing set piece. You know, and it's funny. It's I'm just like thinking about the like you know the old vanguard right of this town, like the, the these characters on the periphery. We should bring up the. You know the old vanguard on the periphery of uh, the village or the community, and in bed knobs and broomsticks, and that's the really old British soldiers. The home guard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, love those guys. What an inspired gag. Like I love their original song when they first show up, and like the pride at which they sing it. Just like this decaying British military of just like old dudes, like they feel like volunteer firefighters or yeah. something. Pour out the tanks. Twenty guys who survived the first day of the Battle of the Somme, you know, and, and now now one of them is defending England with a shovel. We we oh yeah, it's it's a nice touch. We open and close with all these, yeah, like battered old World War One veterans again. Walt Disney's imagination, like remember these heroes. <laughs> <laughs> 
from what? Grown you know, like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but we we should we should introduce, I think, the you know, like the the epic climax of yeah. of bed knobs and broomsticks because I think it is the sequence that certainly affected me the most uh, when I was a child. And oh yeah, I, and I had childlike uh, wonder left in me. I mean, you, know? you 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 said in your like intro, like oh, I'm not really fully sure as to why when I was a kid I was so. And I was thinking the whole time, like I know exactly yeah, why. Okay, yeah, as same. a kid, <laughs> I fucking watched this tape over and over again, and it is you know not for the the dance of the seahorses or whatever under the under the ocean it's it is this sequence we're talking about here which opens of course with a nazi commando raid on the shores of england <laughs> dude i was thinking like it looks like army of shadows you know like yeah. bathed in blue light the nazis coming in in silhouette oh like my God, yeah <laughs> If you weren't already like, you know, trying to hang on with what's going on in bed knobs and broomsticks, like buckle up because the uh, the denouement, the conclusion of this film uh, is is going to throw you for a bit of a loop here. Well, it's interesting because both films deal with like witchcraft being a kind of like opening to a family, opening to like uniting people. Right. We talked about the sort of temporary family of, of Eastwick, you know, the foursome hanging out, becoming very powerful. And in Bed Knobs and Broomsticks, we've got these, you know, st- <laughs> street urchins. Yeah. <laughs> called street urchins, yeah. And uh, <laughs> now we have, you know, Brown, right, the magician. He's along for the ride. He's developing a relationship with Miss Price. And they all are this, like, improvised, you know... Nuclear family. Yeah, nuclear family just flying around on a bed through space and time. And in one minute, they're having sausages and mash. And then the next minute, uh, the Nazis have come to town. (laughs) Yeah, dude. The Nazi sequence of this film, like, is is so, so strange. It is so weird, and it is so, at first, like, low rent. It's it's almost laughable. Like, it is it is clearly on, like, a busted-ass Buena Vista backlot, you know, where this, this battle's going to unfold. And and so I think it's easy when you first encounter this sequence to just be like, oh my God, of course it's going all, it's leading all to this. But the whole film has been building up. You know, the reason why she's been so desperate is for this special spell, like the the final lesson, right? Which is what sends them off, you know, under the ocean and to Namumba and to all places in between. Uh, and it is a spell for what is it there's a great song i, I wrote substitutionary locomotion substitutionary locomotion which is the most fucking mary poppins shit right there right like a yeah there's goofy like a ass. whole supercalifragilistic like riff in this movie yes. when they're trying to recite that spell it's just literally that song yeah <laughs> and this is a spell which can uh animate lifeless objects bring them to life and this is what she was looking for because she knew this would somehow help the war effort. And so, of course, when the Nazis come in, the spell must also, uh, m- you know, manifest itself. And it does. And that sequence is 
incredible. It's amazing. It makes the entire film, it, it, all the sins of this movie wash away in <laughs> the climax. I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing. It really is. Yeah, because we were highlighting some of the special effects in, in Witches in Eastwick, but the special effects during the finale of Bedknobs and Broomsticks like blew my mind. It, it kind of reminded me too a little bit of the the ending of Army of Darkness, like the big battle, yeah. uh, like a similar sense of humor, you know. But just seeing all of these pieces of armor that are now were once inanimate and now are suddenly animate, you know, wandering around, no heads, like the way that they blended having like real men inside of the armor moving around and then obscuring parts of their body to make it look like they were just inhabited simply by air. And as opposed to any like physical material, like it's still really convincing. Oh yeah, and I, I have to say, I think part of like again why as a kid I love this. Obviously, like there's the the military aspect of it all, but it's also like kind of scary. It's kind of haunting. Like it, it's suddenly like very dark. These things are like the stuff of nightmares. Seeing yeah. the suits of armor like in rank marching or the horses, you know, with their their sort of like battle dress on them, like these these ghostly apparitions suddenly like slowly marching on the Nazi position, like the 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 the, the bagpipers playing, you know, these ghostly bagpipers. I mean, it's like, it's creepy as fuck. Like, and it's awesome. It's so good. And even the, like, there's, like, slapstick kinds of, kind of humor in it where, you know, the Nazi soldiers will try to stab the armor, but, like, there's nobody inside. Yeah. And there's all these gags, but, like, they're spooky to me. They're not really funny. Yeah. It's you very know? like an yeah. un, it's, it's like an uncanny valley kind of experience because yeah. of I think as you described how they pull it off, where there at times are very fluid motions and at other times like wires and 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 things that have just been sort of you know they're very stiff. Like it's yeah. it's this strange again like locomotion of these things that that like you know, makes you just try to, like, understand what is happening. Like, how is this happening? Yeah, because, like, most of them are just really impressive puppetry. But then, yeah, you see literal physical, like, human movement beneath some of the, like, you know, key pieces of armor. And that did, like, send a little bit of a shiver up my spine whenever that happened because my brain was only expecting puppetry. You know, mm -hmm. I also like that whole bit about the spell, like rendering inanimate objects animate was really bizarre to me because I was joking with Molly while watching that some of the early chunks felt like gravity's rainbow or like how gravity's rainbow looked in my head when I was reading it. Like this drab London that is like filtered through a Hollywood lens um, and then is like somehow weirdly repurposed with psychedelia. But the, the whole thing about the animate and the inanimate is like the focal point of uh, Pynchon's first novel V and like eventually like materializes in this like automaton woman that these children are putting back together in the rubble. Um, of like an armed conflict and i couldn't help but think like you know this film feels like it's out of time in 1971 and yet there are these weird things that kind of remind me of some of my favorite books from the era too like it's just such an odd thing like i never saw it as a kid so this was this was my first experience of, of bed knobs and broomsticks and 
I, I, it was not what I expected at all. It was neither for Molly. Like she thought the the majority of the film was animated. That was like her memory of this film from childhood. So she was really surprised to see that that in and of itself was maybe twenty minutes of the movie. It really doesn't eat up that much of the time. Um, There's just so much shit packed into this movie. I mean, it's <laughs> it's 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 really like mind blowing when you when you do step back and and take it all in and 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 go, yeah, this whole elaborate sequence was following all of that other madness that we went through. It's 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 dizzying when you finally yeah. like get there and and try to go like so like what was this all like? What was going, like? What was all this for? What was this all about? Yeah, oh, yeah like England, fighting the Nazis. You know, yeah, fighting yeah. the Nazis. That's what all this it was all about. crystallizes at the end. Yeah, and and as the witch armies like proceeding over these hallucinatory landscapes, all of the sudden, Lansbury's like flying through the air with a World War II like helmet on, mm-hmm. and, uh, the, and the British and the, the Union Jack. <laughs> Like flying off of the back of her broomstick. Yeah, really good. I want like a sticker of that to put on my cooler. You know, Angela Lansbury flying. The night witches of the sky ride again. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. They certainly could have used her on the Eastern Front, no doubt about it. Yeah. What are you doing in Dorset? Yeah. It is funny, yeah, because it is so overstuffed, and the Nazis like aren't really present until the end. Like you forget that they're just like a major impetus for the plotting of this movie. That she's like looking for a spell to stop Nazis. And I guess that makes like some sense because like how do you have like a Disney children's film really like prominently feature Nazis in like a meaningful way that is like palatable for children? Well, sound of Music did it. Yeah, they, you know what? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but yeah, I was wondering like when they were finally going to show up. I'm like, what are these Nazis going to be like? And they kind of felt like the Nazis in Indiana Jones movies. I thought, oh like, sure, oddly yeah. cartoonish. They NPCs. Yeah, NPCs. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> For here. Yeah. <laughs> just like just like, extras from Hogan's Heroes. That's what they were. Probably. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> they did have like their accents uh really did have the same like quality of like video game actors in the early 2000s dur- doing like nazis and oh, like yeah. a call of duty game you know that's what they sounded like so i i gotta say too yeah i mean like both of these films have incredible uh uh like effect sequences to to bring them both to a close and and i think they're both sort of like worth the the ride to get there for each in its own way i mean like the the closing of witches of eastwick when when jack is is finally like dealt with by the women and then we just get like a brief shot of him as this like massive demon like figure and then also this shrunken like like jack (laughs) fetus like uh, yeah I thought it looked awesome as well, you know? Yeah, and I also want a sticker of the Jack fetus. That What a horrifying image. It's a, not something I was expecting at all. And it, in the rapidness of which he turns from, like, that giant Jack devil monster into the, like, weird, moist fetus did remind me of the 2010, which we just discussed. Like, it was Dave <laughs> Bowman shape-shifting, like, with the, a single edit. Like, Jack Nicholson is, like, this hulking, crazy figure that... And, and that was crazy too, because at first I thought it was CGI, 
but it yeah. was like a creature that they made. They like had like a man wearing a big arm and then they like, yeah, they actually made a model of Jack Nicholson. But mm-hmm. at first glance, it kind of looked like Mortal Kombat special effects or something. But it was like an actual thing they made. Oh, yeah. Which surprised yeah. me. It's 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 awesome. I mean, the film looks great throughout, I think, you know, it's like, yeah, as we've described, it's a little like off in terms of its it's perhaps uh, sexual politics and it's it's take on, you know, uh, the the liberation one can find by being a witch by going against the grain. Uh, but ultimately, man, I, th- I think this is a film that for like 1987 looks <sighs> Uh, like to me among some of the better spectacle films of the time like i think it's it's incredible yeah i mean for whatever it's worth both of these films did cast a spell on me (laughs) they they were very they they weren't what i expected uh they were very odd um but they they definitely delivered in, in in many respects you didn't expect to see angela lansbury tap dancing with a ghostly empty pair of shoes I know, no, that was that was not what I was expecting when I was announcing the <laughs> the, the witch topic. <laughs> well, uh, what are your favorite witch movies, Ryan? Yeah. Well, these are yeah. ours. Sure, <laughs> favorite might be a strong <laughs> word. You know? yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Something we thought yeah. would be interesting. <laughs> Uh, (laughs) yeah if those are your favorite witch movies and i guess it makes sense that what i'm gonna recommend i could call it my favorite witch movie the film i'm gonna recommend is not a good movie um but it's one i weirdly like think about like a lot for some reason um what year is it from 1983 called the devonsville terror and it's a uh it's sort of like another New England type witch thing. It's like a film that's like preoccupied by witch trials from 300 years ago, like amongst this family and the spirits of that kind of like going down generations and then like affecting the present. And it's not a good movie. It's directed by Uli Lomo, who is like one of those dudes that was in, yeah, you know him. He's in a bunch of Fassbender movies and then he made like a lot of really bad, schlocky horror films the tenderness of the wolves i've seen it yeah (laughs) yeah yeah. so yeah this is him in the 80s and it's like kind of interesting because the film stock is nice and it's like all shot during the fall you know like so the leaves are like really at their peak so it's like got that quality right like a german man making a weird movie in like the the northeast of the united states um and it's just using witches as like a referent but the thing i really like about it is to me it is like the purest expression of donald pleasance cashing a check for a film <laughs> you know because love he he's like top build in the movie and every single scene with donald pleasance takes place in one room and like all he does is sit at a desk sometimes get up to open a chest but he is like really integral into the plot developments of the film and the excuses they come up with which is sort of him like making a phone call or just like (laughs) doing anything that's possible that you could do at a desk to make it feel like he is somehow related to the things happening outside of that office um very funny it's great for the halloween season if you want to veg out watch something stupid and and watch Donald Pleasance like make a couple of bucks and then go enjoy a vacation 
in, in the Northeast. Uh, so I, the devil, the Devonsville terror is, is something worth looking at. I'd say all three of the films that we've mentioned here to me sound like they'd be uh, worth checking out before you watch or rewatch Robert Eggers' The Witch. I think all of them have <laughs> so much more going on than that damn fucking movie. Sure, sure. But yeah, thanks. I had fun. Uh, glad, to, glad to talk witches, um, and I'm excited to talk about whatever it is we're talking about next week. So, Marsh, what is, uh, what's next? You're up next. Well, it's funny you mentioned Donald Pleasance because he actually Uh-oh. figures into how I arrived at the, the topic that I'm going to choose. And it all started last week when Andy and I were having a smoke in the alley downtown and we were just shooting the shit. And, and somehow we got on the topic of movies about assassins and assassinations. And because of that, I watched John Sturgis's The Eagle Has Landed, which, just like Bedknobs and Broomsticks, features a an assault on a sort of sleepy coastal England town yeah, by Nazi Nazis. commando raid. Hell yeah. And <laughs> that's a film about trying to assassinate Winston Churchill. And we were going off and I was feeling like really inspired by our conversation about assassination movies. And we've also got Shinzo Abe, the dearly departed in the news and how like that's, you know, a very interesting assassination story of of recent times still making headlines as the public opinion turns in the favor of the assassin um so yeah that's my topic assassins bring me uh bring me something like that can do great i'm gonna i'm gonna set a hit on you (laughs) please don't yeah (laughs) As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Gauntlet Movies or send us an email at Marsh's Mailbag at GauntletMoviePodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. Ooh, hell yeah. Oh, shit. I fucking forgot the Donald Pleasance thing. In the Eagle Has Landed, Donald Pleasance plays Himmler and he just sits behind a desk in one set the whole movie and basically like organizes this assassination of Churchill only to in the end just tear it up and be like that never happened (laughs) (laughs) it's a great I mean it's again like yeah he's like third build with like all these stars and he clearly shot a day yeah Uh, legend yeah, no one did it better. Work smarter, not harder. That's the <laughs> yeah. Donald Pleasant's way. Substitutionary locomotion, lovely substitutionary locomotion. You've made substitutionary history with Traguna, McCoides, and a little help from me. With Traguna, McCoides, and Don't understand anything, and everything is really confusing, and you think when you grow up that it's all going to slow down, makes sense. Then you'd probably be waiting for the day. Oh, do you think it ever happens? I haven't the foggiest. I do. Oh, shall we? That's my night gun. Is it really, my dear? Yes, and I'm not responsible for its behavior. Obviously not, my dear. Did, 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 what?
disappear and and then I'm just not there anymore. Well, I don't mind that it's a short life. Growing old or disappearing. It's the pain that scares me. I don't know why there has to be so much pain. Yeah. Well, we don't deal with deck down here. We just percentages. So, who would like some more of my lovely sausages and mash? Oh, no more for me, thank you. Oh, Carrie? That was very good, but I've already had two helpings. I'm full. Me too. Well, at least somebody wants some. <laughs> 